my wife Rachel and I have two boys, Asher and Beck. Um, one of the great benefits and joys of having two elementary-aged boys in our house is that our house is filled with silly games and giggles pretty much 24-7. Um, it is a joy. Uh, and over the past few months, there has been a game that has become a frequent one in our life. It's called Would You Rather? Now, if, uh, if you don't have the gift of having two school-aged boys at your house and you're not familiar with how Would You would you rather works. Um, let me explain it to you. You poise a ludicrous question that usually has two equally and fairly well-balanced terrible outcomes, uh, and then you debate over which one of these things would be preferable to happen in your life. I'll give you some examples. Okay, for, for example, would you rather have hands for feet or feet for hands, right? Or would you rather always have a whistle in your nose? or always have food stuck in your teeth, okay? <laughs> or, my favorite, uh, would you rather fight one horse-sized duck or 100 duck-sized horses? It's a, it's a fun and a silly thing for our family. It leads to lots of giggles and laughter and uh, internal debates about which one would be the best option. By the way, it's the one horse-sized duck. Um, <laughs> And this morning, as we get into the back half of the chapter, first chapter of Philippians, we'll be looking at the Apostle Paul's version of Would You Rather. Now, uh, this is probably a helpful time for me to remind you about what this letter looks like. This is not a theological uh, study. This book was not intended to be some kind of deeply mind training for the church. Instead, this was a letter that was lov lovingly written by a father figure to a family that he loves deeply with the intention to encourage and direct them. Uh, it's very personal in its shape. And before we get into it, I think it'd be helpful to do another quick backup run through the story of how this church came to be. I know Paul, uh, Brian did a great job of it last week, but it would be helpful to have a fresh look at it. Paul, the apostle, was on his second missionary journey. He was attempting to make inroads into what he would have called Asia, but it, we would call it Turkey, uh, and he was stopped in his progress multiple times, and it was during this frustration in which he couldn't find a foothold for the gospel that he had a dream, a vision, and a man from Macedonia came to him in the vision and asked Paul to come help them. Paul wakes up and he gathers his uh, journey mates, and they take off immediately for Macedonia, and one of the first places that they arrive is the Roman colony of Philippi. As was Paul's tradition, he would go to the synagogue on the Sabbath where he would worship among the Jews that lived there and he would present the gospel of Jesus to those people. But in Philippi, he found no synagogue. Uh, so after a few days, him and his travel mates found themselves down by the river that ran near the gates of the city. And there he ran into a woman named Lydia, who was a worshiper of God. He shared the good news of the gospel with her. She converts to Christianity. She's baptized, and she invites Paul to come stay at her home with her. And in that moment, a small faithful Christian community springs up inside the walls of this Roman military enclave. It's probably also helpful uh, that we get a little bit of a picture of what the city of Philippi actually looked like. Philippi was a city that sits in a very strategic uh, military and trade position. Philippi was located in what today we would know is northeast Greece, and it sits directly between 
Asia and the Middle East to the east of it, and to the west, Greece and Rome sit on the other side. This area was a narrow trade route, and for hundreds and hundreds of years, it had been a source of military conflict and battle uh, to control this region. Now, there was other factors that that made this city a contested city. Uh, One of them was the fact that the nearby hills were found to hold very rich deposits of gold, and therefore the city became a seat of one of the biggest wealth producers in the known world at the time, and those gold mines ensured that Philippi would always be a place that would be fought over by the powers that be. Now, about 100 years before this letter is written, Rome uh, is doing its Roman thing, and it, it conquers Philippi. Uh, And so what they have to do is they're in a unique position at this point that they have to try to control this strategically important and wealthy point that is a relative long distance from Rome. Uh, And there is a challenge to secure this place long term. And the Romans came up with a clever and unique solution to the problem. Before before I tell you about it, let me give you uh, an American history lesson. In In the second year of Abraham Lincoln's presidency, he signed into law something called the Homestead Act of 1862. The Homestead Act was designed to settle the western half of the North American continent. Uh, And the idea was that by offering land to people, they would move out to those areas and that they would settle those areas and eventually civilize the continent. The agreement was if you move your family west, settle, improve the land, farm it, then after five years, we will sign you over 160 acres for you to own for your family. The idea was that as those families began to settle and own a place, then it will become a society and they will establish the land. In fact, my family uh, directly benefited from the Homestead Act. Our family came from Norway and settled in the plains of North Dakota because they were offered land to start a family. Now, like in the United States, uh, Rome had to figure out how to establish an outpost out in this area of Philippi. But unlike the western part of North America, they had an extreme security situation that they were trying to lock down, which brought its own problems along with it. So as a result, they came up with what I think is a pretty ingenious plan. They launched a homestead act of their own, but rather than making it for any farmer who wants to go farm, they targeted it specifically at retiring high-level military commanders from the Praetorian Guard. This was the guard that was the highest level of the elite military. They were often assigned to directly guard the emperor. And so if you spent your entire career loyal to Rome in the highest level of military, in the heart of the Roman capital, protecting and ensuring Roman rule would continue forward, then at your retirement you were offered land and a home in a wealthy, beautiful city called Philippi. Now, the side benefit of such an arrangement for Rome is that it allowed this city to become filled with extremely loyal and highly trained military professional. Uh, In fact, this place was so closely aligned with the Roman capital that it wasn't viewed as a separate city, but as a colony of the capital itself. And with it came all of the laws and benefits that came from living in the capital city. And because of the gold mines, it was overflowing with wealth and privilege. And it's in this place about... 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, that Paul finds himself founding a brand new church uh, backed by a wealthy and influential woman named Lydia. Now, 
for this letter, the one that we find in our New Testament, the one that's titled Philippians uh, in your book, there's, there's a, some debate about when this book was written. Uh, we know from the letter itself that Paul was imprisoned at the time that he's writing this, but in Paul's life, that's not actually very uncommon. Uh, typically, if I'm going to write you a letter and say I'm in prison, it's like, oh, that, it's that one stint you had, not for Paul. He was in prison multiple times, so there's a little bit of debate uh, about which one of the imprisonments he's in. It could have been when he was in Ephesus. It could have been when he was in Caesarea Maritime uh, before he appeals his case up the Roman hierarchy. But most scholars believe that he's actually in Rome. Now, Paul would have been imprisoned, but it wouldn't be the kind of prison that we're used to thinking about, right? There's no bars, there's no alarms, there's no yard to go get yoked in. Um, This would have been a house arrest, and he would have been housed in a house that he was paying the rent on, but he would have been chained, either figuratively or literally, to a guard that was assigned to him 24-7. And the church in Philippi was unrelenting in their commitment to Paul and to his mission to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. They'd been supporting him for years with money and relationships. They'd also been faithful in supporting some of the other churches that Paul was connected with, specifically the one in Jerusalem, as they were dealing with poverty and oppression. And here we see that they're sending him love and friendship and word and concern and money to Paul while he's being held in prison. Uh, Now, if we're correct that he's actually in Rome, this would have been about 10 years after he established the church originally in Philippi. And they have sent uh, one of their members, Epaphroditus, with a letter and money to visit Paul. After all, he's got to pay his own rent, so they're going to back him with some cash here. And after a long, long, arduous, nearly fatal journey, the letter has made it to Paul, and now this letter the one that we call Philippians in your New Testament, is Paul's response back to that faithful church that loves him so much. Okay, so now before we get into the text, uh, I'd love for us to pray that God would help us this morning and have a sense of what we're trying to do here. Pray with me. God, we, we thank you for the faithfulness of this church and the love that Paul showed, showed toward it. God, I pray that this morning as we delve into this text that we would uh, have a clear vision of what you would have from us to learn from it. God, you intend for us to be a transformed people, and you use your word preached to transform. God, I pray that you help me to be faithful this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to follow along with me, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. We're going to finish out the back half of the first chapter. If you don't have your Bibles, you can follow along on the screen. Here we go. Paul says, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with with Christ, which is far better, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and that I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves 
in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Uh, we actually picked this section up right at the tail end of verse 18. Uh, and the bridge that ties last week's text and this week's text together is this idea of joy. Paul is obsessed with joy. He emphasizes that word throughout this letter. In fact, he uses the word joy or rejoice 14 times in this short four-chapter letter. And it could be easy to look at the circumstances in which Paul finds himself in and read Paul's words about joy and d dismiss him as being unrealistic, as being ungrounded from reality, as being an optimist at the highest level. But, but I would argue that Paul instead is being a realist. Now, in our society, uh, being a realist is just a nice way of saying a pessimist. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think in, in Paul's case, he has a view of joy in the face of persecution, imprisonment, and possible death because it is laced with a realistic view of the way the world works. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard has a quote that says, Purity of heart is to will one thing. Purity of heart is to will one thing. Paul has a singular vision. Paul has a singular focus, a singular conviction, and it's the thing that motivates everything for him. It is the truth that Christ is king. The idea that Jesus is the Messiah long awaited for by the people of God and that through his life, death, and resurrection, he has now been enthroned at the right hand of the Father and rules for all time over all things. It's the belief that that Jesus is still alive and active and powerful and moving in the world, that that same Jesus has established his church and will not let it come to ruin. And it is the conviction that that same Jesus will be returning again, triumphant, to gather his people. That is Paul's vision. Paul processes everything in his life through this lens. And he's writing to this church that he helped found, that he loves so deeply to help them see through this lens as well. Last week, he helped them process what to do about this idea that there was rival preachers coming up in the wake of his imprisonment. This week, he's helping them see how to process the very imprisonment which allowed those people to spring up. Paul is a leader who is concerned with the health and the continued viability of the church. As a leader who founded this church and loved this church, he is most concerned about how it will continue in the event that he's gone for good. This imprisonment might not end in his death, but at some point in the not-too-distant future, Paul knows that his continued run-ins with the Roman Empire and his exclusive claim as Jesus as Lord are going to end in his demise. Paul knows this. Paul is concerned, but not for his own safety, but that he would remain faithful as his safety is ripped away from him. Let's look at verse 20 again closely. It says... I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. 
Paul's number one concern is not for himself or for his own safety or for the outcome of his imprisonment, but that he would end up being faithful to the very end. That through his imprisonment, through his discomfort, and through his possible martyrdom, that he would be faithful as a witness to the reality that Christ reigns. Sitting in a jail cell in Rome, awaiting a trial that could very well end in his death, uh, you could say that Paul's in a little bit of a pickle, right? You could say he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. You could say he has to decide between the lesser of two evils. But I don't think Paul would use any of those images to describe what he's dealing with. In fact, Paul's would you rather isn't trying to decide between two bad options, but instead trying to decide between two desirable ones. It's like showing up at a restaurant that only serves pizza and tacos, but you can only pick one of them. Pizza. Paul lays out the internal debate. What he, he's wrestling with it inside, and he's sharing his wrestle with the church. He says, what do I desire more, to live or to die? And this, this wrestle is summed up in one of the Bible's most iconic verses, verse 21, where Paul says, for me, verse 21 says, there it is, <laughs> for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This is a, a verse that has impacted the Christian community arguably as much as any in the New Testament, right? It's a favorite of bumper stickers uh, and witness wear the world round. It's, it's absolutely iconic. It is also one of the most difficult verses to live into fully as a Christian. This idea that our entire life is only lived in the shadow of Christ, is absolutely inspirational, it's aspirational, and it's incredibly difficult. The idea that death somehow leads us to final victory is unnatural to us. What comes naturally to us is something like this, this little stick figure guy here. Yeah, this is a well-known American brand, right? It's found on the t-shirts of retired men or men re nearing retirement around the world. Uh, it, it emphasizes the way we actually feel about life and death, especially in suburban America. Life is good. Life is safe. Life is comfortable. I have the freedom to design my life the way I choose. I have ample free time. I have ample money. No one impinges upon my freedom to pursue happiness. Life is good. And even when it's not good, and I complain about legitimate hardship, somebody will try to convince me that if I would just get the right perspective and see how not good it is in other places around the world or at other times in history, it's actually pretty good for you right now. Now, it's easy for us to think that these kind of views on life are unique to suburban American life in the 21st century, but it's, it's simply not true, as evidenced by this verse that Paul gives us. Um, because of our distance from this culture, it's easy to see this verse as a standalone, unique comment on the Christian faith created by Paul. But in truth, it was a twist on something that existed in the Philippian culture. In Philippi, when you ask someone, how are you doing today? It was not unusual to respond with the phrase, to zen krestos, uh, which would be translated from Greek to life is good. Before a meal, it would not be uncommon to lift a glass to the table and have everyone shout to Zen Krestos, life is good. After all, life was good in this rich, protected Roman colony. Paul takes this 
common phrase that defined life for the Philippians, and he twists it in a very subtle and clever way. The phrase that we see in verse 21 in the book of Philippians in Greek takes to Zen Christos and changes just one letter, and it becomes to Zen Christos. And with that small change, Paul encompasses the upside-down way that he looks at the world and throws everything into a fresh perspective. See, for Paul, being released from prison isn't like being released from Shawshank, right? You get out and you work your way across the border and end up on a Mexican beach to quietly hide out for the rest of your days. No, Paul is in prison and he's thinking about the possibility of release, but not because he's looking for a vacation or a retirement, but he's looking forward to future work on behalf of the church. Death is not the worst outcome in Paul's mind. Unfaithfulness to the gospel is. He prays that in the event that things get more difficult for him, in the event that he gets convicted and is heading for his martyrdom, in the event that he's released and allowed to go free, that he would be faithful no matter what. In life or in death, Paul's concerned that he and the church are faithful to the end. In death or in life, in peace or in persecution, in health or in illness, in poverty or in wealth, live a life worthy of the gospel. In verse 27, Paul says this to the church after he sums up the possible outcomes. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, it's, it's interesting here because uh, the translators of most of our New Testament translations uh, translate this, uh, conduct yourselves. Some of them will say, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Uh, but you could maybe more accurately translate this out of the Greek to live as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Or even engage in politics in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And once again, Paul is taking what would have been understood in the church of Philippi, a Roman outpost, people loyal to Caesar, one of the highest concerns of their life was that they would be citizens worthy of being called Romans. And with that came all kinds of social and communal commitments as well as loyalty to Caesar. And Paul picks up this idea instead and says, instead of being concerned about whether you are worthy to be called Romans, he's calling them to live as citizens worthy of being called Christ's. If you notice, Paul doesn't call them to reject their Roman citizenship. Uh, it would have been difficult for Paul to do that with any credibility. After all, Paul was a Roman citizen, and he appealed to the citizenship benefits that come with that to get his court case appealed up to Rome. Instead, Paul says that they have a higher calling than even Roman citizenship, and it is one of the citizenship of the kingdom of heaven. The church is called, yes, to be good members of the societies in which they find themselves, but to always hold in mind that you are primarily a member of another society, one led by King Jesus. And the question for the church of Philippi is, how do, and for us, arguably, is, is how, how do we do that? How do we live these kind of faithful lives? Paul seems convinced that the way to do that is to be committed to standing firm in their conviction of the reality of the gospel and the claims that it's making upon their lives. It's, it's done by living as if the truth of the gospel is actually true. Shocking, I know. 
It's done by taking the things we claim we believe with our words and actually believing them by living them with our lives. Now, at the time Paul's writing this letter, uh, the Roman Empire was dominating most of the known world at the time. And although the Roman Empire was actually known for its tolerance and for its peace, those things were achieved through military muscle and might. Uh, the Roman Empire was successful in taking over the world uh, by both the size and of its military and the ingenuity of its tactics. The Roman military was mighty and the Roman military was feared. And both of those things allowed it to secure its territory for a long time. Uh, there was a military formation called the phalanx, which was one of the most imp impressive military strategies ever devised up to that point. It was, it was devised by the Greeks, it was borrowed by the Romans, and it looked like this. The, the phalanx was a group of soldiers that created an incredible formation of, in battle. Now, if you're good at math, uh, you can see that's 128 men. This, this was something that was developed and perfected under Alexander the Great and the Greeks, uh, and then was borrowed by the Romans. And essentially, an invading army or an, or an army being attacked when faced with simply 128 men saw them armored, shielded, linked together with weapons drawn in every direction, and immediately upon seeing a formation like this, they would realize, it's, it's over for us. <laughs> you're, not, you're not breaking this apart. And Paul uses this military image to reinforce to the church what they must do to flourish and survive in the world. The church must stand together as a united front, unmoved. They must commit to fight side by side with bravery and confidence because being alone or being separated means becoming frightened, becoming spooked in the midst of battle. Standing together means confidence and reinforcement. And when the opponents of the church see you and your unity, they will see it as a sign of their defeat. It's important to remember here that Paul also reinforces why they're being saved and what they're being saved for as he frames the way to view the world. They're not uniting together, standing side by side in order to dominate the culture. They're not doing it in order to ensure their freedom as a church. They're not doing it for any of these reasons. Instead, they're doing it so they can remain faithful in the face of persecution, of ridicule, and of pressure. The church will not be saved for comfort, for ease, for power, but for suffering and service on behalf of others. Paul, Paul ends this first section, the first chapter, uh, by reminding the church that grace is a two-part gift. The first grace is the grace that saved you, and he reminds them that they did not earn it. It was given to them freely, but then he quickly reminds them that the flip side of the coin of grace is one that is built on the suffering that God allows to come into your life to shape you. The grace that saved you was a gift from God, and the suffering that will shape you is no less a gift. But, but the church has to come to view that position of service and suffering as a gift in order to embrace it to change. Paul is saying, I know you see me suffering, and I'm choosing service even at great cost to myself, and that will be coming for you as well. He's concerned that the church would view their role in the world as one that is a gift from God, a grace that will shape them into a faithful community and draw them closer to Christ. 
Church, we, we have to be realistic about uh, our situation. We're not facing the kind of persecution that Paul was facing. Everywhere that he went, his proclamation of the gospel was viewed as a direct assault on the holiness of God by Jews and on the sanctity of the Roman Empire by the Gentiles. And the result of those two offenses put them, him at constant odds with the authority figures of those societies. Uh, he ended most of his gospel missions in ways that we would never choose. He was shipwrecked, maligned, he was poor, he was beaten, he was imprisoned. Eventually, he was killed. Likewise, this church in Philippi was so small, so unique, so unusual, that it's hard for us to really draw parallels for ourselves from them either. As a committed Christian in American society, uh, sure, you might be slightly odd, your opinions might be disregarded in the public square. Your perspective on some social issues might be viewed as out of touch, old-fashioned, but it's not remotely the kind of pressure that this church was facing. You also have the benefit of existing in a society that values, maybe above all things, personal autonomy. So although the way you may be choosing to live your life is weird, we have a society that values personal choice, and you can choose your weird thing all you want. I think what we have to wrestle with uh, as we work through this letter is not what Paul is saying to us, because Paul was not writing to us. He was writing a personal letter to this church. But we have to wrestle with what can we learn from what Paul is telling this church that he loved. I'm going to leave us with just a couple things. The first one is the Christian life is not just countercultural, but it's counter-instinctual. Everything about it goes against the natural grain of our lives. It requires a committed heart, will, and mind. The idea that life is about others instead of ourselves, the idea that suffering and sacrifice is a gift that shake, shapes us and we should welcome it, the idea that faithfulness to someone other than our own hearts is the highest ideal, the idea that my life is lived under the rule of someone else, the idea that when death is found faithfully, it's a win, it, it are such foreign concepts to our natural way of life. There is absolutely no hope that we will be able to live as faithful Christians in the way that Paul describes for himself and hopes for this church unless we're committed to seeking Christ in our lives, committed to relying on the Holy Spirit to guide us, and pursuing the willful, purposeful transformation of our lives through our hearts and our desires. Because left to our own designs... Our heart will lead us down the path of least resistance. We will chase a life that we will allow to be defined as good by our culture and our own hearts, one of ease, autonomy, comfort. The church has been given the greatest gift of the Holy Spirit, and we rely on the Holy Spirit to connect us with Christ as we intentionally pursue him because it's the only way we have of being shaped in this kind of a way. The culture will not encourage it in us, and our hearts will conspire with the culture to not encourage it in us, but the Holy Spirit will be faithful to transform his church. Number two, the, the Christian community is not just a nice benefit to your faith. It is indispensable for faithful living. Paul seems to understand at a very basic and instinctual level that without each other and the encouragement that comes from being a part of a community called the church, we will bolt under pressure. We will peel off. 
We will wilt. The difficulty that comes with service and sacrifice to others needs to be a pressure that is carried by many people together. Discouragement needs to be battled with encouragement by fellow believers. Exhaustion needs to be refreshed by other Christians. And Paul tells the church, you must stick together to be the kind of force that we claim that we are. Remember, we say to the world that we serve a king who reigns over all things, and we are a colonial outpost of that king in this land. Our lives must back up that incredible claim. Paul knows that the love and support of each other within the church will allow us to validate the claims of the gospel, and he knows that without each other, we will tend to leave the difficult parts of the gospel call and the kingdom behind, and we will become ineffective witnesses. If if you're here this morning with us, and you call yourself a Christian, if you desire to follow Jesus with your life, and you do not have intentional Christian community in which you're investing your life, then Paul's message to you through this letter to the church that he loves is that your life is to be closely connected and standing united with other Christians for the mission of the kingdom. Church here at Redemption Gilbert, we exist to preach the gospel, pointing people to the hope that's found there, and then helping to connect those believers to other believers so that the gospel can come to bear in our lives. Now, we can help you connect to other Christians, and we would argue that it is one of the primary ways that God shapes his people. So the next time you see starting point mentioned in the bulletin, or when launch point starts up in August, of which I will be leading, so if you like today, you could get more of this. Uh, If you don't, you should come anyway. I'll be way better next time. Uh, You should join us and, and get connected to other people in the body. Lastly, I want to leave us with some questions to maybe ruminate today. Are you living as a faithful citizen of the kingdom of God? If we define a faithful citizen as someone who is ready to serve the good of the kingdom, even at great cost to yourselves, can can you say that about your life? Yesterday when I was trying to finish my notes on this sermon, I ended up um, procrastinating well and ended up reading an interview, a transcript of an interview with uh, Bill Belichick, who's the coach of the New England Patriots, which I know, I know the Patriots, the Patriots, but uh, it's hard for me not to be fascinated by Bill Belichick. Now, it's easy for me because I'm a fan of NFC teams, so that's aside, but arguably there's not a coach in the history of the NFL who's had more success than Coach Belichick. Uh, in an interview, in the interview, he said one of the primary things that he teaches to people who join the team is that their concern is first for the team, second for their teammates, and third for themselves. And as I was preparing to think about what Paul would be instructing the church, it was hard for me not to see some parallels here. I would argue that if Paul were writing a coaching philosophy for the church, I think he would say that our first concern is for the spread of the gospel and the witness of the church that validates it. The gospel is our number one concern. I think his second concern would be for the welfare of your neighbor, first within the church and next in the world. And then lastly, concern for oneself. Church, I would argue that the idea of a faithful Christian life is not necessarily one that is constantly pursuing persecution or chasing this idea of being an outcast or being weird, but instead one that is committed to living a quiet, 
hardworking life as a member of society, but with glasses on, always looking for a way to encourage the gospel's spread, looking for a way to love others, and looking for a way to faithfully represent the kingdom. Does your life look like that? What does your life look like? look like. The the most difficult part of preaching a sermon like this uh, is then when we get to the part where I have to try to help apply it, uh, it's really hard because everyone's calling and and life looks unique, right? And when the church gets behind specific ministries, it can be really easy to say, well, faithfulness looks like being involved in that ministry. So we support foster care and adoption. It's real easy to say, well, then you'll foster care and adopt if you're going to be faithful. And maybe for you, that's true. Maybe. But I think a a stronger argument is that the faithfulness of the church is being a people who are constantly on the lookout for the places where your life intersects with people, places, and situations in which you can be used at cost to yourself. Places where the gospel can be spoken of, where it can be lived out. Places where there's an opportunity for you to go low in your pursuit of living a kingdom life. So this week, I'd love for you to ask yourself, where are the places in my life where I'm being called to be a quiet, hardworking member of society, but also giving my, of myself in order to love the people that have come into my life? Do you have a neighbor who has a unique set of needs that you can meet? Have you been given a child with special medical requirements? Do you have parents that are aging and now you have to live with them and die to yourself every day? Can you choose to live more frugally so that you can give more? Where can you choose the pursuit of intentional blessing to your enemies? Your life has been shaped in a unique way that brings you into contact with the community in unique ways, and you can choose to live your life as one of service. Or have you chosen to develop a life that is good, a life in which you're comfortable and secure, a life that protects you from having to give of yourself for others, a life in which your highest concern is that you are ensuring that you have enough money to retire and enough time for vacation and enough freedom to pursue them both. I would argue that Paul would say to you simply to zen Christos, to live is Christ. Your life is a gift that is to be spent on behalf of others and hardship and persecution are not curses in your life but gifts that will grow you closer to Christ as you engage in them purposefully alongside the Christian community that you have been given in this place called the church. Let's pray that God would help to make us faithful, whether in life or in death. God, we desire to be faithful. God, we confess that we are not pure in heart, that our lives are often not motivated by willing one thing, but we also confess that we want that. God, we want to be a people who point others to Jesus both in the way we speak and the way we live. God, we want to be people who welcome service and persecution because it brings us closer to you. God, we also confess that we're often afraid of those things. God, we we beg you, make us a faithful people. God, make us a faithful outpost of the kingdom here in Gilbert. God, transform us as we seek Christ together. We pray this in his name. Amen.